All right, if you want to come back and grab a seat, we'll get started. You can open up to John chapter 1. So this last weekend, uh, we had our Desert City Church staff Christmas party last uh, Sunday night. And uh, if you know the staff, we have a lot of kids. And so the Alta Villas have three kids. Marcy and I have four kids. And the Stancils have 12 kids. Um, Stancils have five kids. And then the Ls have a newborn. So it's crazy. And we were trying to decide, uh, you know, what we want to do for kind of a staff party. So we said, let's just have everyone to our house, um, and we'll have a pajama party. That way we don't have to dress up, we don't have to get babysitters, it'll be super laid back, it'll be fun. Just have everyone over, and uh, we'll, we'll just kind of celebrate together as a staff. So um, all 30 children came over, and uh, we decided to play a game. We played Family Feud, which is a fun game uh, that you probably know, the old show, Family Feud. Um, well, we decided instead of doing like families against each other, because that could have gotten pretty competitive, uh, we decided let's do children against adults. And so our thought was like, oh, we'll just destroy the children. This will be way too easy. And, uh, and the kids end up winning. Uh, and, you know, we let them win. So, no, they, they, they were really good at it. And they, and they beat us. But there was one subject, you know, with Family Feud, you get this topic, and then the, they have kind of... Uh, Survey shows like what popular opinion is, and you're trying to guess what the popular opinion is. The, the one subject that we actually did well in was best Christmas movies uh, of all time. And, uh, and so we had this list, I think, if, if, there we go. Name the best Christmas movies. And as you can see, we had an age advantage on the children. Um, I think the only two they got were Home Alone 1 and 2 and Elf. So they had like never heard of It's a Wonderful Life, um, which is like one of my favorite movies. Uh, a Christmas Story, White Christmas, Christmas Vacation, which is like a holiday uh, tradition with my family. Um, I grew up in a pastor's house, and so every Christmas Eve we'd watch Christmas Vacation after church. Uh, Miracle on 34th Street, uh, How the Grinch uh, Stole Christmas, not Stone Christmas. That, I don't know what, what movie that is. <laughs> Uh, Christmas Carol, and then Rudolph. And so our children, they didn't even know Rudolph. Remember Rudolph, like the old, like, playmate? Like, our kids were like, you don't have a childhood if you don't know what this is. Um, and, and so us adults, we won this, and our kids were like, that's not fair. We've never heard of any of these movies. And, uh, but, like, thinking through this list, as you, you, all of these probably, you have different feelings about each one. Uh, some of them are funny. Some of them are heartfelt. Some of them are controversial. Like, when you see this list, you think those were all, they're all of these, like, kind of, like, secular Hollywood tellings of, of what happens at Christmas. So all of them take us through this journey, and there's tension, and there's humor, and there's dysfunction, but they all communicate this, this message about what happens in this season. They're Christmas stories. They are, they are stories that move us, and they remind us that this world is bigger than ourselves. And this is like, this is Hollywood telling uh, these stories. They all have different styles, they're different genres, they're in different um, maybe decades that they were, they were uh, produced. The last uh, couple of weeks, we've been looking at the four tellings of the Christmas story that we find in Scripture and the Gospels. And one of the things that we've been, been noticing is that 
when the gospel writers speak of this first story, they all have kind of a different style, a different genre. They're all communicating different things. And so uh, one of the, 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 the writers of, of, of scripture is a man named Matthew. He's a tax collector. He's by the book. He's got kind of the details and the order, and he goes through the genealogy. And so when you start with Matthew's Christmas story, you start with the genealogy, and you're like, I just want to skip to the good stuff. But we talked about how in the genealogy, though, there's something that's being communicated. And then uh, you, have, you have Mark's gospel. When Tyler preached on Mark's gospel and the, the, the Christmas story, it, it, they jump right in on that one. They, they skip over a lot of the details. We think Mark, uh, he was probably close to Peter, so it might be kind of like Peter's account of like what's happening. Um, and it's all about preparing your hearts for what is going. This, there's this holy anticipation for what God's going to do. Uh, last week, we actually looked at kind of the Christmas story through Luke's eyes and had the children tell it. Luke was a doctor. He was super detail-oriented, and he paints a picture uh, of what happens, the details. The, it, it's like he's telling this story uh, that we see a narrative, the historical narrative of what's happening, and that's where we get most of the details of the Christmas story, and it's, and it's a, beautiful, uh, a beautiful painting of what happens that first Christmas. Well, today I want to look at John's gospel. And John's gospel is different. Uh, John was this uh, young, young man at the time of Jesus, uh, probably a fisherman. Uh, but when he decides to tell the story of the first Christmas, he doesn't necessarily bring the, the historical narrative into it. Uh, what he actually does is something uh, very different. Instead of writing as, as kind of a history, he writes poetry. John chapter 1 is this poem that John composes. And his emphasis isn't necessarily kind of the historical story of what's happening. He has an emphasis on theologically what's happening behind the scenes. And so John's poem is this, uh, they call it the prologue of his gospel. And it's just rich in imagery and poetry. And I want to read it today. If you can follow along with me, John chapter 1 says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning, and through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made that has been made, and in him was life, and that life was the light of all mankind. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to testify concerning the light, so that through him all might believe. He himself was not the light. He came only as a witness to the light. The true light that gives light to everyone was coming into the world. He was in the world, and though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. He came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. Yet to all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Children born not of natural descent, nor of human decision or a husband's will, but born of God. The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father full of grace and truth. John testified concerning him. He cried out saying, This is the one I spoke about when I said, He who comes after me has surpassed me because he was before me. Out of his fullness... We have all received grace in place of grace already given. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, but the one and only Son 
who himself, who is himself God and is in closest relationship with the Father, has made him known. It's beautiful. It's poetic. It's deep. There's, there's a depth to it, as John writes. And it's also a little bit confusing. This is like, this is the first Christmas story. This is Jesus entering into the world, this idea that we know as the incarnation. God became flesh and he made his dwelling among us. It's a lot easier to just have, you know, the shepherds and the sheep and the angels and like what is going on? There's this theological emphasis of what John is saying here. There's a lot going on. It, it, it's something that we, we can read it and we can read it as a poem and it's beautiful. We, it, it takes us into this depth of, of there's different layers to it. Augustine, one of the great minds of the fourth century, says of this prologue, it is beyond the power of man to speak as John does in his prologue. John Calvin said this, he said, rather, uh, should we be satisfied with this heavenly oracle knowing that it says much more than our minds can take in? This first Christmas story, this Christmas poem from John, there's this depth to it. And you can, you can look at the poem and see all the different things that are going on. It's a, there's a, a chiasm, I think, is that what it's called in poetry, where it goes like A, B, C, D, E, D, C, B, A. There's this kind of structure and flow when you look at it in its original language and you realize this is something that's really brilliant that John's doing. And then you, you have these, in the beginning was the word, in Greek it's this word logos. And logos is something that, that John's communicating to the Hebrew people who have this idea of, of this, this wisdom and throughout the Old Testament that, that God has given them of how the world works. So he's writing to the Hebrews. And then this idea of logos is something in Greek philosophy that the Greeks would understand. It catches their attention. And as they're reading this, they're, they're saying, like, what John's capturing this idea of the logos, the truth of the world, and he's saying that this is personified now in this, this, this Jesus. And he's writing to the Greeks. There's, there's different layers to this poem, and it's brilliantly, brilliantly written. And John is saying this. He's saying this is the theological thing that's happening in this Christmas story, is that Jesus is God. He's divine. He's the Son of God. And he has come into this world. He, he has taken on flesh and blood. He has become human so that we may know what God is like. This is a revelation of who God is. And John is saying this is what Christmas is about. God became human and walked among us. Christ is divine and Christ is with us. And as I'm kind of reading through these different layers of this poem, and you see this idea of the logos and you see the light and the life, this one phrase I just kept coming back to when I was trying to think of, what, what is John communicating here? And it's this idea of belief in this theological concept. Belief. Do we believe this? John lays it out. He says, Jesus is God, and he has come to earth. He's this revelation of what God is like. In the life of Christ, we see God. Do you believe this? Do you believe it? This idea of belief... Verse 12, he says, Yet to all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. John's writing about this idea of belief. And belief is this word that John uses again and again and again. In fact, he uses this word 98 times in his gospel. And it's a verb. Belief. Those who have believed. It's, it's something that requires action. The noun of this word is faith, and he doesn't use faith at all in his gospel. 
It's almost like he's communicating this idea of what you believe, there's ramifications of that. It, it, it changes how you live, this idea of belief. There's convictions that change your actions. And John wants to know, do we believe? Do we believe? Belief is uh, something that we talk about a lot during the Christmas season. Four kids, 11 and under in my house, it's a concept that we keep talking about, belief. Parents, you know where that tension is. Shirley Temple, the old actress, talks about she had this crisis of faith one year at Christmas. She said she went, uh, she was like at the, the mall or something, I can't remember where it was, but she went to go see Santa, and Santa wanted her autograph. And she was like, wow. <laughs> you know, belief is something that fuels these old Christmas stories, like in the movie Elf. What is it that like fuels Santa's sleigh at the end? The singing, spreading cheer for all to hear. There's belief that fuels Santa's sleigh somehow. Belief is something that we always come back to with Christmas. We were reminded that there's something else happening in this world. When it comes to this first Christmas story, Jesus coming into the world, Jesus, the divine son of God, do we believe? What does belief do? First thing I think that we come to understand in the story is that belief, it leads to relationship. Belief leads to relationship with God. There's this divine experience that we have with God when we believe. We experience Christ. John says, for those, uh, yet all who did receive him, those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. There's relationship that starts here with belief. It's an experience that starts when we open our mind up to what God has. Belief, when we encounter Jesus, two things happen, according to John. One is that there's a light that comes and there's life that comes. The end of John's gospel, he says, I am writing all of this that you may have life in Christ. We have this understanding that life is eternal. When we come to belief, we come into relationship with God, we, we enter into this life that is eternal. It becomes this, this life that there's something destined in our life, there's this future destination of heaven, life with God, but it's also this present reality that starts now. It's life that is truly life. The culture of heaven invades our life. The kingdom of God flows through us. When we believe this relationship starts, where we start to experience life eternal. John says that, that we also experience the, the light that comes with Christ. A light, uh, a light that, that shatters the darkness. I love kind of the language. It says the light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. Through belief, this relationship, we experience life and light. Light in a dark world. Light that darkness cannot overcome. Uh, this week had an experience that reminds me of the darkness of our world. And it seems like this has just been a really kind of heavy year with people, just with physical ailments uh, in, in our community and, and people that I know. Uh, we've experienced death. We've experienced people who've gotten uh, sick. Um, some of you know Julie Olinger. Uh, Julie's daughter, Emily, was in the hospital this week. 
got a call on, I think it was Wednesday, and uh, she said, Emily's in the hospital. She can't really feel anything from her legs down. They're trying to figure out what's going on. They're running a bunch of tests on her. Just pray for her. And uh, was in there for a couple of days, so called, said, see, can I come and, and just visit and, and see if we can pray with Emily? Um, and uh, when I was there, I think it was on, on Friday, um, one of the pastors of our sister church down in Arcadia came to and we were there when, when they received kind of the news of, of what it was after all the, the, tol- the tests, the results came back, and we find out that Emily has MS. Been around people who've been sick, but to be in a hospital room when you get news like that, you're reminded of darkness. is isn't the way the world should be. Emily's in her young 20s, kind of mid-20s, we find out it's not something that's life-threatening, but this is something that is life-altering. Darkness starts to swarm into a room when you get news like that. It becomes overwhelming, overpowering. We live in a world where we get news that's life-shattering. The story of Christmas, the story of Jesus coming into the world is light in a dark world. The darkness does not overcome it. Different things that we experience in this life that feels like darkness. There's this hope that we have in our belief in Christ that he has come into this world to shatter the darkness. To shatter the darkness. Here's what light does. Light puts chaos to flight. Light puts chaos to flight. When the world feels like it's out of control, when we watch the news, light puts chaos to flight. Jesus comes to bring light to a dark world, to bring order to the chaos around us. It doesn't mean life is going to be easy, but it means that in the midst of the darkness that we experience and go through, there's this life eternal, this light, this hope that comes. We're able to travel through this world much differently. Sitting there with Emily, hearing this news, we were able to just pray. Pray for peace that passes understanding. Pray that the darkness wouldn't consume her, that her mind would be encouraged and positive as she gets ready uh, to live life like this. We need this light in our life, that God is with us. Light shatters the darkness. The other thing light does is that it it reveals, light reveals what's truly going on. And this is something about our own lives and our own awareness. We come to understand ourselves through Jesus. We come to understand who we are, what our identity is, not the messages that we get traveling through this world about who we are, but light reveals our true self, that we are made in the image of God, that we are loved that we're worth dying for. The light reveals what's going on inside of us. It exposes things that shouldn't be there. Brings life. Light puts chaos to flight. Light reveals and light guides us. Helps us to understand the world that we're living in as we travel through this world. This light is a guide 
allows us to navigate the challenges of life. One of the old poets said that God's word is a light into my path, a lamp to my feet. It guides us. The light is something that shatters the chaos, it reveals who we are, it guides us through this life. William Barclay, an old commentator, wrote this about this passage. He says, we never see ourselves until we see ourselves through the eyes of Jesus. We never see what our lives are like until we see them in the light of Jesus. Jesus often drives us to God by revealing us to ourselves. There's something that is enlightened when we believe. This relationship with Christ becomes uh, an encounter with what's real in this world. The light comes into our life. The second thing that belief does is it belief leads to community. So belief leads to a relationship with God, this encounter with the divine, we experience him. But also belief, it, it puts us in community with each other. I love how John says, for those who believe, they were children of God, part of God's family. There's this community of people that you enter into. And the language is, is interesting as, as John describes it. It says, children of God, children not born of natural descent, nor of human decision or a husband's will, but born of God. To be a part of the family, God's family. We have these local expressions of it, the church. But it's even beyond that, to be a part of, of God's family. All the different things that divide us, our family of origin, race, ethnicity, uh, whether we're American or Canadian, Mexican, like all those things are, are, are part of who we are as humans. But we're all part of this family of God. This church is global. It's, it's historic. This is what we're, we're born into, this community. Um, I, I've been in ministry for about 14 years and been a part of different communities and some great churches. I, I love the community here. It feels like family. It takes a long time for community to get built. Um, church is something that uh, can have a lot of baggage for people. Church is something that uh, a lot of people uh, may have bad experiences with because church is made up of humans and we're all broken. But when a church is on, when a church is good and healthy, there's nothing like being a part of that. It's an unstoppable force in this world. To be a part of a community, the family of God, is a place where you can be known and still loved. You can be uh, accepted. Uh, you can be... Uh, challenged in ways that are loving. You can be encouraged. Uh, you can have support. You can find purpose. Uh, to be a part of this family is a beautiful thing. I love what's happening here in this community, although we're, we're new, we're small. Uh, but it, it feels like this, that we are children of God. Not born of natural descent, but created in the image of God in community together. Belief leads us into this community called the church. And it's a beautiful thing. And finally, belief, belief leads us to action. It gives us mission. Uh, if belief in God, it starts with this experience where we have this relationship with God and it reveals our identity, it puts us in community, but it also gives us purpose. Belief leads to action. The very next verse is it talks about Jesus takes on flesh and blood and he makes his dwelling among us. 
What does a relationship with Christ look like? It means that you start to embody the way of Jesus in this world. The body of Christ. We're embodying the way of Jesus. Christ made his dwelling among us now. This, this church, this body of Christ, we make our dwelling in a community. This is an incarnational community. We're present. We're faithfully present in each other's lives and the lives of our neighbors around us. Because belief It's not just about what you believe, but it's what you believe enough to do. And it changes our actions. It gives us purpose and meaning. There's mission. This is what belief does. We join God in his work in this world. For John, it says that he's proclaiming this gospel. The action that takes place is proclamation and demonstration that God is moving in this world. Belief leads to relationship, it leads to community, and it leads to mission. Jesus comes into the world to ignite this in our lives. There's an old story in a book that I read uh, by an author named Donald Miller. read this about maybe 15 years ago. Uh, But he tells this story about this idea of of belief and incarnation. And he tells about how he had a friend uh, who was special ops, he was in the Navy SEALs. And he was on this mission uh, to rescue a bunch of hostages. And uh, as he goes to, uh, on this mission, they, they fly in by helicopter, uh, they get dropped off, go into this compound, and they find these hostages. And these hostages have been held captive for like six months. Uh, it took a while to find them. They're in this really dark place in the world. Um, they go in, they're ready to rescue them, they're ready to bring the hostages out. And the hostages are kind of huddled up in the corner. Some of them are laying down. And as they go in, the SEALs are like, let's go. We're here to save you. We're uh, we're the good guys. Come on with us. And and the hostages don't move. They just lay there on the ground. And uh, the man who's telling the story says, when we see that, we're thinking, are they hurt? What's going on? They try to get them up. They say, let's go. Come on. We're getting out. We've got to get out of here. We're rescuing you. Hostages don't move. He starts to realize something. The hostages are, are scared of them. Even though they're the special ops that are trying to save the day, they're, they're scared of them. When they were hostages, they were, had all sorts of psychological torture, times where they thought they were escaping. They have no idea who these seals are. So he says his friend finally decides he has to do something. He needs to get the hostages to believe that they're the good guys. So he puts down his weapon, he takes off his helmet, and he lays down on the floor right next to one of the hostages. And he starts to whisper to the hostage, we're here to rescue you. We're the good guys. You can come with us. You are rescued now. He makes eye contact with one of the hostages. And something happens, something clicks. And he stands up, and one of the hostages stands up. And after that hostage stands up, the other one's trust as well. And they all stand up. And the story ends with them being taken back to this aircraft carrier, and they're safe. I read this story, and I thought, something happens here with these hostages. Whatever they've dealt with, whatever they're afraid of, all of a sudden they decide to trust and believe. When I think about the story of Christmas, I love that story of the seals coming into the rescue. Because I feel like when God comes into this earth, God who is invisible and mysterious and all-powerful, outside of the boxes we put him in, He starts to make sense to us in the person of Jesus. Jesus comes down 
as a human, comes to our level and says, you can trust me. I'm here to rescue. Whatever is captivating you, whatever is taking you captive, I'm here to release you of it. And God in all of his might and power, sovereignty, comes to us in the form of a baby. Gets down on our level in a way that we can understand and invites us to freedom. This is the story of the first Christmas. Gets on our level and says, you can believe this. You can believe this. When it comes to Christmas this year, we celebrate the word made flesh. Jesus came to walk among us. And the question we have to wrestle is, do we believe? Is this something that we believe? With all the the mythology of Christmas, with all the different tales, with all the different things that uh, are wrapped up in it, it essentially comes down to this story. God became man, and he enters our world in the form of a baby. He gets down on our level, and he says, do you believe? There's light, there's life here. The question we wrestle with this year is, do we believe this? Tim's going to come back up and, and close us with a time of, of uh, reflection, prayer, and worship. But when it comes to belief this year, I want us to consider this. What is it that I believe about this story? Maybe it's a story I've heard my whole life, and it's a nice story. But I've never believed in a way that has led to relationship. Or maybe I've never believed in a way that it, it's led to a life of, of community with God's family. It's never led to activating me for mission in this world. Do I believe? Do I believe enough to act? I'm not sure where you're at in your journey, but the invitation today is to believe. One of the things that we do is we take communion each week. And communion is this remembrance of this act of God becoming human. We take a piece of bread that represents the body of Christ that was broken open on the cross. We take a cup of juice that represents the blood of Christ that was was shed on the cross. We believe that through the breaking open of God's body and the shedding of his blood, uh, we find life eternal. All the things that are broken in our life get put back together, and we proclaim that, we remember it, and we proclaim it. Maybe today you need to come to the table with this question in mind. Is this something that I believe? I believe enough that there's this relationship, believe enough that it's something that I do. I'm not sure where you're at in your journey today, but we invite you to the table to join in in this glorious story of rescue, of redemption, of light, of life eternal. Let me pray. Lord, we're so grateful for these gospel accounts of how you came into the world. from the genealogy of Matthew that reminds us that there are broken people in this story and you use them. From the great anticipation of Mark, as we prepare our hearts, from Luke's beautiful telling of the story that we got to see with the children last week, that you've come into the world, you deliver us from sin, you give us great purpose, you make us whole to this theological poetry of John, Lord. We experience the light and life that comes from you. 
this year for Christmas, Lord, give us a strong faith. Remind us of these old stories that you've loved the world so much that you haven't given up on it, but that you've entered into it, that you invite us to do the same. The darkness can't overcome your light. Lord, give us purpose and mission. Allow our lives to be gifts to others as your life is a gift to us. Stir our hearts today, Lord. Let us encounter you. We're so grateful for this Christmas story. We're so grateful for your love. May your blessing be on your people.